I'll pray again, and then we'll, we'll get started with this. Father, again, we thank you for not only this grand and glorious plan, but that you have been pleased to record it for us. You have been pleased to work it out in a very careful and marvelous way and to preserve for us the record of that, the legacy of that, and to be able to even interpret the coming Messiah, the one who came in the fullness of the times through the lens of of that great and glorious work. And we thank you, Father, that we have the privilege of being those upon whom the ends of the ages have come, that we live in the time in which all of these promises, all of this grand and glorious work has become yes and amen in Jesus our Lord. And we know him not just with the eyes of history, but with the leading and illumination of the Spirit. We know him because your Spirit has made him known to us. And what a glorious thing to be able to know him through the lens of the Scripture, through the lens of this this great story, this marvelous accomplishment of our God, that despite the failure of men, despite the constant obstacles thrown up before your purposes, you are the God who has shown himself faithful. And in all things you have triumphed. And the resurrection of our Lord is the great climactic evidence of your triumph. In him, all things are made new. We thank you for that. And I pray, Father, again, that as we continue our consideration of this great story, that you would instruct each one, that you would meet each one here at the point of their understanding, at the point of their faith, at the point of their their need for encouragement and further understanding. You will build up each one in this most holy faith. And so we entrust this time to you. We ask you for your mercy upon us and your leading in it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we did the big sweep last week uh, going through uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges, kind of working from Israel at Sinai and the renewal of the covenant to the point at which they had inherited the land and now the period of the Judges where there's just increasing decline. And we saw through the book of Judges this cycle of complacency, apostasy, God bringing subjugators, you know, enemies to, in a sense, bring Israel under their dominion within the land of Canaan. And as their oppression became so severe, they cry out to God to deliver them. And God would raise up a judge and bring that man as a deliverer to liberate them from those that were persecuting them. And during the life of that particular judge, the people would tend to be faithful. But when that judge died, they would begin the process all over again of becoming more complacent, wandering from the Lord, eventually becoming apostates, God again bringing oppression upon them and them crying out. And that cycle happens over and over again through the book of Judges. And then the climax of Judges is where that that strange account of, again, the the concubine being murdered uh, by the the men who seek to get at the the man of God in in the house of the the other Israelite. 
and how he chops her up into 12 pieces after she's killed and sends her to the 12 tribes, the parts to the 12 tribes of Israel. And it provokes this national warfare uh, that ends up almost decimating the tribe of Benjamin. So Judges ends on this very tragic, woeful, shocking note that Israel has become indistinguishable from the nations. You, you see in that event a, a kind of repeating of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah that brought the judgment of God upon those people. Israel has become indistinguishable from Sodom and Gomorrah, the great kind of emblematic, uh, pagan, unbelieving, disobedient people in the world as the scripture deals with that. So that's where we left off last time, Israel in this place of decline and woe and disunity and, and unfaithfulness. And it's at that point then that we see the emergence of this man, Samuel, and this transitional period uh, leading up to the monarchy. So through the book of Judges, we saw how comprehensive throughout the nation Israel's unfaithfulness was. But the one thing Judges didn't really deal with, though it's kind of suggested, is how that corruption had made its way even into the priesthood and the priestly administration. But that dynamic in Israel's life isn't really dealt with in Judges. It comes out in in the picture in Samuel. And specifically in relation to the person of Samuel, we we read Hannah's uh, prayer of praise when God gives her a son. And she had prayed to the Lord and said, if you will give me a son, then I will consecrate him to you to serve you all your days. So when Samuel is born and then he is weaned, then Hannah takes him up. Uh, to serve the Lord in connection with his sanctuary. And at that time, Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are the priests who are administering the priestly function. The tabernacle is at Shiloh. If you remember from Joshua 18, Joshua settled the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, uh, at Shiloh, and it's continued there now through the period of the judges. That's where Yahweh's encountered in connection with his priesthood. That's where the priestly ministration takes place. So it's in connection with Samuel that we now see this focus on Eli and his sons. And we're able to see how this corruption in Israel is even reached into the priesthood. So if you look at, again, hopefully you're still in uh, 1 Samuel. But 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4, uh, well, well, let's pick this up at verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. That's a very shocking thing to say of the priests who are ministering at the sanctuary on Israel's behalf. And the role of the priest was to teach the sons of Israel to know the Lord. And they don't know the Lord. And they're described as worthless men, worthless men. The custom of the priests, um, they did not know the Lord or the custom of the priests with the people. When a man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling and with a three-pronged fork in his hand and thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there, this abuse of the sacrifices. 
And before they burned the fat, which was the offering, the kind of the centerpiece of the offering to the Lord, uh, the fat was considered to be the choicest portion, and it was burned to the Lord at the begin as, as part of that sacrifice. The priest servant would come and say to the man who sacrifices, "Give the priest meat for roasting. He won't take boiled meat from you, only raw." And if the man said, "They must surely burn the fat first, then he would take then take as much as you desire." Then the the servant of the priest would say, no, you shall give it to me now, and if not, I'll take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men, these priests, Eli's sons, was very great before Yahweh, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. And it will go on to say that they would even um, lie with, have sexual relations with the women who were serving in connection with uh, the door of the sanctuary. And so they were utterly despising of the Lord and despising of their office. These were the priests in that day. Just given over to abuse, to self-indulgence. They didn't know the Lord. They didn't care about him. Their whole priestly ministration was unto their own profit, their own gratification, their own self-indulgence. That was the sin of Eli's sons. Eli was the priest over them, and he was aware of that but he didn't do anything about it. The text even indicates, if you go on and read through this section, that he himself was profiting from their abuses. He himself was taking some of that seized offering, if you will, for himself. And when finally he does confront them and say, what you're doing is not right, he leaves it at that. He doesn't go any further than that. He didn't hold them accountable. And the text says God's own uh, assessment of Eli is that he honored his sons more than he honored God. A very typical pattern, unfortunately, with parents. There's a tendency to honor the children more than God himself in our dealings with children. But Eli would not stand against his kids. He would not oppose them. So God responded to that by sending a prophet to him and rebuking him and pronouncing a judgment upon him and his household. As I say in the notes, it's a, it was a fitting irony that Eli's house, his priestly house, would continue to serve in the priesthood, but only for the sake of the distress of that priesthood under, Eli, under the Lord's punishing hands. So if you look in verse 27... Chapter 2, a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father? This is Aaron. Eli's a descendant of Aaron. He's of that priestly household. When they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house, and did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I've commanded in my dwelling and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, Yahweh, the God of Israel, declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. This is Aaron's consecration and Aaron's family to be the priests in Israel. 
But now Yahweh declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house, Aaron's priesthood, so that there will not be an old man in your house, and you will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel, and an old man will not be in your house forever. And yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar, that your eyes may fail from weeping and your soul grieve, and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them shall die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to all of what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house and he will walk before my anointed always. And it shall come about that everyone who's left in your house, Eli, shall come and bow down to him for a piece of silver, this priest that I will establish, for a piece of silver, a loaf of bread, and say, please assign to me one of the priest's offices so that I can even eat a piece of bread. So God has told Eli that he's going to bring distress and humiliation and degradation on his household. They will continue to serve as priests, but again, only unto their own punishment, their destruction. And ultimately, Levi will lose his own life, but not before he sees his two sons die and the Lord's ark taken from Israel. Remember again what we read in Psalm 78, the the desolation of of Shiloh and God's glory departing from Israel. That's what Psalm 78 is talking about, what we're going to see today. So this is the word that comes to Eli, and now Samuel comes into the picture. He's a young boy. He's in the sanctuary, and this is that section that we're all familiar with where Samuel hears a voice say, Samuel, Samuel, and he thinks it's Eli calling to him. So he goes, this is the middle of the night, and he goes to Samuel or Eli, and he says, you called me, and he said, no, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. So he goes back to bed, Samuel, Samuel, and he goes back to Eli. Oh, you called? No, I didn't call. This happens, and the third t- three times, the third time, Eli says, this is obviously the Lord. So go back, and when you hear this call again, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is, is listening. And when Samuel does that, then the Lord repeats this curse on Eli's house to Samuel. And the next morning, Eli says, so what did the Lord have to say to you? Don't withhold any of it from me. So Samuel then tells Eli, he reiterates what God had already made known, this judgment that's coming on Eli and his house. And Eli says, well, so let it be. So Samuel, who's already identified as the one who hears the Lord's words, ratifies this um, or confirms this punishment, this condemnation that's coming on the priesthood, the priesthood associated with Eli and his house. But again, God also promised that though this house of Aaron would continue and in in a kind of distressed way, he would raise up a faithful priest who would serve him. And I'm not going to develop all of this today. You can look this up for yourself. But I believe the initial um, historical referent of that is Zadok. If you're familiar with Zadok and his priesthood, 
he is a faithful man who shows allegiance to David the king. And Zadok, uh, who's of a different line within Aaron's um, line of descent than is Eli, Zadok becomes high priest under Solomon. And Zadok and his priesthood continue on as the faithful priesthood in Israel all the way up to the point of the captivity, the destruction of Jerusalem. And Zadok is so much associated with the faithful priesthood that when you see at the end of Ezekiel in the vision of the rebuilt temple, Um, It's Zadok and his sons that are said to be the ones that God will raise up to preside in that restored temple. And again, I don't want to get into all of that and the prophetic significance of that other than to just say that that vision of a restored temple that uh, Ezekiel is allowed to see speaks to the time when God will restore his house, his dwelling place in association with a faithful priest and a faithful priesthood that will abide before him forever. And that ultimately, again, looks to the Messiah himself. He is the faithful priest whom God will establish. And through the prophets, it's also made known that this priesthood would have a whole line, uh, this, this kind of central priesthood would have a whole line of priests to come from it that these priests will serve Yahweh in his tabernacle or in his dwelling place forever in connection with this primary priest who is the Messiah himself. And so the New Testament speaks about being priests and kings to our God, right? A holy priesthood grounded in the Messiah's own priesthood. So that's where this promise of a faithful priest Uh, is ultimately going but Zadok becomes the one in Israel's history that that gets kind of situated in just as the promise of a triumphant everlasting king who establishes Yahweh's house and throne and kingdom David is that man initially and then through David the promise of a son of David so again this is the way the scripture builds its story It, it it brings someone into the picture who kind of fulfills what is promised, but yet doesn't fully fulfill that. And that person himself becomes a pointer to someone beyond him. And that's why the prophets will even talk about God raising up David, his prince, to preside over his people long after David's dead, because David ultimately finds his true meaning in the son who is to come from him. And that's all I wanted to say about the faithful priest idea. So God promised this desolation that's coming on Eli, but ultimately a kind of judgment on Aaron's priesthood as well. And the initial fulfillment of that comes through warfare between Israel and the Philistines. The Philistines continued to be an active opposing presence in Israel all the way up uh, through David's reign. Who does David fight with when he fights with Goliath? It's the Philistines, right? So they continue to be a thorn in Israel's side as a coastal uh, nation consisting of five tribes or five uh, princes. And Israel goes to war with the Philistines and they're routed. And after that defeat, the elders of Israel get the idea, we should send for the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, the ark had gone before Israel in its wilderness wanderings. The ark had gone before Israel when they marched around Jericho. The ark was like, you know, God going before them to fight their battles. 
And so they said, let's send to Shiloh and bring the ark here. And maybe that will give us victory in battle. So they do that. And when the ark arrives in the camp, all Israel lets out this great shout. And the Philistine army camped nearby hears this great shout. And they come to the conclusion that they must have brought the ark of their God, this symbol of their God's presence and power into the camp. And they're frightened of it, but that only uh, steals their resolve to fight harder. So now they're even more committed to the fact that we're going to, if their God is with them, we're going to really have to fight them hard. And they do, and they slaughter the people of Israel And in the process of that, because Hophni and Phinehas, the two priests, are the ones who carry the ark, uh, you know, into the camp and out onto the battlefield, they're killed and the ark is taken by the Philistines. That's what Psalm 78 is referring to, God's hand against Shiloh and the removing of his glory from his people. So that's now the ark is taken and it's in the possession of the Philistines. And as it is, as it comes into the possession of the Philistines, God's hand starts to move against the particular city or the community where that ark is situated. And they keep moving it around and, you know, pestilence and boils and, and, you know, devastation come to that area. And finally, they begin to get a clue that this is Israel's God doing this to us. So the diviners and the soothsayers of the Philistines come together and they say, what you need to do is send this ark back to Israel. But you need to also send it with a guilt offering to maybe appease the God of Israel. They don't know anything about this God, but somehow this God is rising up against us. You, we need to uh, present a, a sin offering or a guilt offering to them. So they send back along with the ark um, five gold tumors or boils and five gold mice. The mice kind of symbolizing the devastation of the land, the consumption of the land, the devastation of the Philistine lands, and the tumors, the boils that were breaking out on the people. So that's the way in which they try to appease the God of Israel. So they put this ark and these offerings on a cart, and they send it back towards Beth Shemesh, this town uh, near near Philistia, and and this as this ark is coming back on the cart, the people of Beth Shemesh see it and they're rejoicing. Oh, the ark is back! But through this process, um, some of the men of that town end up looking into the ark, lifting the cover and looking into it, and so God ends up, you know, being angry and and slaughtering uh, tens of thousands of the people in that in that area. Well, that terrifies them, and they say, we don't want this here either. So they end up then dispatching it from there um, into, uh, into the town of uh, Kiriath-Jerim, I, I believe is the name of the town. And it sits there now for the next, in, in the house of a man named Abinadab, it sits there in his house for 20 years. So that's the basic story, but to kind of fill in some of the details, when the ark is taken and Hophni and Phinehas are killed, remember that Eli had been told that he would, his sons would die and that he would see the, the, the distress on God's dwelling place. 
And when he hears what has happened, he's an old man and he's feeble and he's really overweight. He falls backwards in his chair and breaks his neck and dies. And then Phineas, one of his two sons, his wife is pregnant and uh, she ends up in her distress uh, going into labor and giving birth. And that birth ends up killing her. But before she dies, she names this child who is born. The, the women who are delivering the baby say, rejoice, rejoice, you have a son. And her answer is, name this son Ichabod, Ichabod, no glory. For the glory has departed from Israel. And then she dies. So her son becomes this son who's born in, in, you know, in this travail and this, this, this trouble, this distress, this tragedy of death and calamity. He becomes a perpetual reminder throughout his life that the glory has departed. So the ark continues with the Philistines then for seven months before it comes back. But even when it comes back to Israel, if you notice in the story, it's not taken back to Shiloh and the tabernacle. It ends up in a man's, you know, in some shelter or something, some, you know, shed or garage as we would think of it, uh, in a man's house. It's not back in the, the sanctuary again. And we don't have any explanation in the text as to why they, the Israelites didn't put the ark back into the, uh, you know, into the sanctuary. I think the reason probably was that the priesthood in, at that time was devastated. There was no priest. It was Eli and his sons who were the priests at that time. They're dead. There's no one to minister before the Lord at Shiloh. And nobody wants to touch this ark or mess with it, so it just gets stashed away, and it's left there for 20 years. So we see how just like the calamity in the nation at the end of Judges, now the whole priesthood and the whole administration of of God's worship in Israel is totally decimated, and Yahweh himself is in exile. Why do I say that? Because the ark represented God's presence. He was enthroned between the wings of the cherubim, right? His Shekinah, his Shekinah glory was God's presence. And when Israel took the ark out of the sanctuary, it represented God being removed from his sanctuary. His glory presence was in, you know, between the wings of the cherubim was associated with the ark itself. And when the Philistines captured the ark, it was now exiled from Israel. Yahweh himself was exiled. He was gone. And it was an exile that he himself orchestrated. He allowed that ark to be captured. And even when it came back, it didn't go back to its sanctuary. It sat in a man's shed or whatever for 20 years. It was back in the borders of Israel, but Yahweh was still exiled. He was removed from his dwelling place. So really, the beginning of his exile, it wasn't when the ark was captured. It was when the elders in Israel, specifically then the priests, went into the Holy of Holies and took out the ark and removed it from the sanctuary and took it to the battlefield. They removed God from his dwelling place in the midst of Israel. And God affirmed 
that action in a negative way, that exiling of him by allowing his ark to actually leave the the land of Israel and, and come under pagan jurisdiction. And even when it came back, he was still in exile. He was still alienated from his people. And we'll see the next time that it's only when David comes to the throne that Yahweh's ark is restored to its sanctuary. David's the one who brings up the ark out of Abinadab's house. And he does it as Israel's enthroned king. After God has already rejected Saul, who isn't of the the kingly tribe anyway, Saul in many ways is a pretender to the throne of Israel, right? David is the man after God's own heart. David is his elect king. David is the one to whom the kingship in Israel belongs. And it's notable that David is the one who ends Yahweh's exile and restores him to his dwelling place in the midst of his people. He does that as Israel's enthroned king, God's anointed. Remember how Psalm 78 ends with God blessing David, his anointed. David is the anointed king. He's the one that brings Yahweh back into his dwelling place in the midst of Israel. But even more, he does it as the triumphal king. David is the one who finally, after all of those centuries, conquers Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the last Jebusite stronghold in Canaan. They could never quite conquer that. It's a high piece of ground, and it was a fortified uh, city. And the Israelites never were able to conquer Jerusalem. So it was still a kind of non-Israelite pagan enclave in the midst of the land. And David is the one who conquers Jerusalem. And he believes that that is to be the place that God had spoken of all the way back to Moses. When God said, when I give you the land, I will establish a place for my name. And that's where my dwelling is to be. And that's where all Israel is to come and encounter me and worship me. And ultimately, the nations are to come and meet with me there. And David comes to believe when he conquers Jerusalem that that's to be the place. That's the place where Yahweh's name should go. And so we know, and we'll see this as we read on, um, David wants to build a temple. He wants to build a dwelling for God in Jerusalem. But at this point, as the enthroned king... Having conquered Jerusalem, he goes and he gets the ark and he brings it up with the priest carrying it as God ordained up to Jerusalem. And David is bringing it as a king wearing the linen ephod. He's enthroning Yahweh on Mount Zion, reuniting the ark and the sanctuary, restoring God to his dwelling place in the midst of his people as a priest king. That's what we're going to see happens with David. And in all of these things, you say, okay, well, that's all fine and good. That's very interesting. Well, all of those ideas are very important to understanding the greater David, the son of David who will come. He's the one who enthrones Yahweh in the midst of his people, right? He's the one who reconciles the alienation between God and the world, God and his people. He, in a sense, enthrones Yahweh or is the way in which the God of Israel becomes king over the whole earth through his own kingly, priestly mission 
he builds the house of God on the foundation of himself. And in that way, Yahweh carries out his own reign over the earth. All of these ideas that we see manifested in Christ's person and work had their origin in the Old Testament and the story that it tells. And specifically, if we say, how is Jesus the greater David? How is Jesus the true David? It's in all of these ways that he's the true David. So that's why the story is so important for us to keep in mind. And hopefully then by the time we get to Matthew 1 and the birth of this individual who is the son of Abraham, the son of David, we say, oh, okay, I get it. I know who this one is and I know what he's going to do. I know why the Lord sent him. I know what he's going to accomplish. I know what God's great and ultimate intent is in him because I know the story, right? So that takes us then, Samuel now is the last of Israel's judges. He's the one who pronounces the condemnation on Eli and his sons on the priesthood in that sense. Uh, But he will also continue on from that point forward to serve in a kind of quasi-priestly role as the last of Israel's judges. And he will be the one who will anoint Saul as king and ultimately even identify David as the rightful king of Israel. Samuel is the hinge between the time of the judges and when Israel is in such a woeful, disunified, apostate, corrupt state, even down to its priesthood, he will be the hinge in the transition to the emergence finally of this man after God's own heart in and through David in whom God will establish the glory of the kingdom promised to Abraham. Samuel is the one who walks that through. So that's first and second Samuel right? One book in the Hebrew Bible, first and second Samuel are one book, but well, let, um, let me pray then. I know there's a lot there, but let me pray then. And the next time we will pick up with moving forward into the actual monarchy itself. Father, I pray that you would capture each person's heart and mind. We were truly created to be story people throughout history and every culture and every time people have known themselves their families their nations their cultures through the stories that identify them that bind them together the stories of their heritage the stories of their family the stories of their nation and when we teach truth we use stories whether parables or or uh, other forms of storytelling. You've created us to be a story people. And this is the great and grand and glorious story of stories. The purpose and the work of our God that finds its focal point, its fulfillment in Jesus our Lord and in and through him unto the end that you would sum up everything in your creation in him. All things renewed, all things consummately glorious, all things finally becoming what you created them to be in and through him. And in that way then, as Paul said, you are God become all in all. This is the great story of stories. And I do pray again that it's a story that captures our hearts, that captures our imagination, a story that we never get over, a story that we continue to be fascinated with, a story that we continue to learn more minutely and and with a a greater sense of, of delight and even mystery. 
But Father, this is how you've been pleased to make yourself known. This is how you've been pleased to make your purposes known. This is how you've been pleased for us even to know ourselves as Christians, to know what it is that you have brought us into and called us to. And so I pray that you would teach each one, that you would capture the heart and mind of each one, and that we would truly in this way grow up in all things into Christ who is the head, and that we would be ministers of this glory to one another. So bless us in these things. Bless us even in our discussion to come. And as always, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.